All right. Well, good evening. We'll go ahead and uh, begin here since it looks like the, the clock has indicated its time. I want to begin with, uh, I'll read a passage here from Proverbs and then open in prayer. And then we'll continue with uh, where we left off last time. We're still working our way through the introduction. Lord willing, this will be the final night of introduction. And then we'll be spending the remainder of our time looking at uh, the book and the text itself. But I want to begin here uh, with, again, reading Proverbs 1, 1 to 7 to set the framework tonight. <clears throat> we'll be discussing uh, the theme of the book uh, and some of the... Uh, clues for how to read the literary features of Proverbs. We've hinted at this a little bit, but when we look at the book of Proverbs, of course we understand that uh, some of the Proverbs are uh, indicating general principles that we understand are not necessarily what we would call normative or prescriptive. So we'll, we'll talk about what that means this evening as we work through. Okay, so I'm reading here from Proverbs 1, verses 1 to 7. The Proverbs of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, for gaining wisdom and instruction, for understanding words of insight, for receiving instruction and prudent behavior, doing what is right and just and fair, for giving prudence to those who are simple, knowledge and discretion to the young. Let the wise listen and add to their learning, and let the discerning get guidance. For understanding proverbs and parables, the sayings and riddles of the wise, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. So let's uh, bow for a moment of prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity that we have again to study your word and to look at the book of Proverbs, and we just pray that you would give us wisdom and insight as we uh, seek to understand the book better. I pray that you'd uh, just help us to readily grasp the truth of your word and to correlate it in our lives. I pray that all of us would gain wisdom as we study this book, that we would be able to uh, navigate life in a fallen world successfully while uh, displaying fear and reverence for you. I pray that you'd help us to apply uh, the precious truths of your word and that our confidence in your revelation through the scriptures would increase and that you would strengthen us in our faith that we might uh, be able to minister to those around us to edify the church and to glorify christ and so we thank you for this time we have tonight and we just pray for your blessing uh, upon our discussion we ask in jesus name amen all right i've mentioned a little bit last week we talked about how the structure of the book i would argue uh, lends itself to how Proverbs develops. We saw that there are seven sections, if you recall, to the book, and that uh, I would suggest that these seven sections get progressively more complex. It begins with these introductory poems uh, to the young man in particular. Uh, and remember, we saw this uh, in the notes on pages, the early 30s here, 32 uh, to 34 how these 10 speeches really constitute three different categories. It's a first a call to attention to get the, uh, the attention of the young man and then a call to remember and obey. That is to say, once the attention is gotten by the sage, then the young man is to inculcate in his mind to remember certain truths and to hold fast to these. And those speeches are characterized by words such as do not forget and remember. And then finally, there's the warnings against the outside woman. That 
seductress who might lead him astray. And so he's to fortify himself against her allurements by remembering the truth that's been inculcated uh, from his youth. Uh, I was just reading a book this past week that uh, made mention of something which is interesting in light of our discussion uh, last week. If you look at verse 8 of chapter 1, the first speech begins, Listen, my son, to your father's instruction, and do not forsake your mother's teaching. What's unique about this is really Proverbs is the only uh, ancient wisdom literature, that is to say of... If we look at wisdom literature of the ancient Near East, and remember we looked at some of this, we looked at the wisdom literature of Egypt and of Mesopotamia. Uh, This is really one of the singular places where both the father and the mother are involved in training the young man, the would-be sage, in the truths of wisdom. And so uh, the book frames this as training that begins in the home in the context of the father and mother, and so it's unique in that sense. And I think the speeches move from a simple uh, protection against uh, violent youth that might lure the young man into the wrong path, and it ends with these three speeches against the outside woman. Okay, so that's where we were last week, and now we want to continue with that and move on. So uh, if if you have your notes, uh, page 36, and we're going to talk about uh, some matters related to this. So once you get through the nine speeches, the next major part begins in chapter one, uh, 10, and we saw this a little bit last week. You notice chapter 10 and verse 1, uh, the heading there is the Proverbs of Solomon, and I would argue that these represent mainly uh, two-line verses that give some sort of more complex wisdom to the young man. Once he's mastered the ten wisdom speeches and the calls of Lady Wisdom, he now comes into uh, these proverbial sayings that are slightly more difficult to understand, and they invite further reflection. We talked a little bit about this last week. Now, one of the major questions that's uh, been asked relative to this section is, are, is there an intentional arrangement of these proverbs? So in other words, is there uh, a conscious arrangement to why they're placed where they are, or is it simply a random collection? I don't know if you've ever read through Proverbs chapter by chapter and wondered if there really was any intentionality to how these Proverbs are placed. Uh, Any thoughts? Have you ever noticed any sort of a pattern, or do you typically have you thought that they're really just more or less randomly put together? Exactly what I thought. Randomly put together. Randomly put together? Okay. All right. Have you ever been reading and noticed that there were maybe two Proverbs put together that seemed maybe like they had a relationship to each other? And how would you know that to be that? How how would you notice that sort of thing? How would you observe a potential connection? Okay. Repeated words, right? We would call these catch words or words that repeat themselves. Uh, And so sometimes uh, you might notice that, okay? Uh, A common theme perhaps, okay? So I I was just perusing a few chapters uh, before we began, and uh, I was in chapter 11. You might just notice this, for instance. This is just sort of a a random example, but uh, in chapter 11, verse 10, it says, When the righteous prosper... 
the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Okay, so that's a, a proverb we could contemplate and basically get the principle that's involved there, and that is that uh, the, the community flourishes when righteous people are uh, able to live in a way that they prosper and have success. And the inverse is also true. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. Okay, so that's a proverb we could take on its own merits. But notice the next verse. It says, Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. Okay, is there a similarity there? Well, we would notice that in both Proverbs, the city is mentioned, right? In verse 10, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. In the next verse, through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. Okay, and then the converse is also seemingly parallel. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy, or the mouth of the wicked destroys the city. All right, so uh, what scholars who have studied the book of Proverbs intensely have Noticed is that there are at certain points what seem to be proverbs that are placed deliberately next to each other so as to tease out an idea. But at the same time, you read further, and the next proverb is about a gossip who betrays a confidence, and a trustworthy person keeps a secret. That's what causes me to say it's just random. Yeah, there might be one or two that kind of hit on one and two. But the next one is completely in left field from the other two. Right. Now, here's <laughs> the question. Whether it's a righteous ruler, or now you're talking about something else. Right. So, so there have been several scholars who have written dissertations on the book of Proverbs. And they make the case that, yeah, it seems like the next verse is random, but actually the way a city is destroyed is by gossip. So, in other words, they would try to conceptually tie that. So here, here's the rub is some have said, if we look more closely, we can see these patterns. And others have said it's really more the creativity of the scholar rather than any, any objective reality that connects these verses. All right. I'm sort of a middle of the road on this issue in that I think that there are sections that have patterned proverbs put in proximity. But at the same time, I think you can creatively force the issue too much and find things that maybe aren't really there in the text. Okay. Uh, other thoughts about this? Yeah. So, like, most, most uh, when you don't see that, are just random axioms, like just random truths. It would seem that there are thematic groupings with more deliberate parallels that are sometimes put together, uh, but other times it's really hard to discern a, a, a an intentional pattern. So... I'm sort of an agnostic on some of these supposed links that I've heard and seen argued for, uh, because sometimes I think maybe there's some merit to it, but other times I think it's just uh, it's more about the scholar being creative than really seeing a connection there. And remember, Proverbs talks about all sorts of facets of life, so we would expect it to touch on a wide range of issues, so we would uh, expect that to be the case. Other thoughts about that or questions? Yeah. I've gotten an impression sometimes that God has compassion on us when he gives us these things because we could be reading, I could be reading something in Proverbs and it hits me right between the eyes and it's powerful and it's hard to absorb Yeah. because because it's convicting. 
and then the next thing is completely unrelated to me, and so I can read that, and it's not hard yeah. to read, you yeah. know, and it kind of breaks up that really intense seriousness of the moment. You right. Know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. I do. And certain proverbs will speak to a situation in life, maybe in one particular phase of your life that in another is not. You know, we uh, there have been experiences like that for me where uh, a few years ago we were dealing with a very difficult situation with uh, interpersonal conflict, and the proverbs that dealt with this issue just seemed to take on a new life for me at that point. And so, I think that's that's the beauty of the whole counsel of God is seeing how those relate to each other. All right, any other thoughts on that? All right, so if you look at page 38 of the notes, so these next major sections are these Proverbs, and as I mentioned, there are essentially uh, two major Solomonic collections with a few subsets put in. In chapter 22, uh, verse 17, there's this heading, these are also the sayings of the wise, uh, and so we see two headings like that. Then we have in chapter 25, the Proverbs of Solomon, which the men of Hezekiah copied. And then we have these two enigmatic figures at the end of the book, uh, chapter 30. So if you look at chapter 30, uh, verse 1, the sayings of Agur, son of Jaka. All right, that's one of these other individuals about whom we know nothing. And then chapter 31, the sayings of King Lemuel. Now, some have argued that Lemuel is a pen name for Solomon, that that's actually Solomon who's writing that. Uh, I haven't necessarily been convinced of that argument because if it were Solomon, uh, why does he use a pen name here and not elsewhere in the book? Um, So I'm not necessarily uh, in favor of that argument, but the bottom line is we don't really know who these two sages are. It would seem that they're likely sages from perhaps outside the immediate community. So how did they make their way into the book of Proverbs? This is a question that we can't really solve based on the evidence that we have. Uh, But in certain ways, if you look at the the book of Proverbs, it does seem that there are these concentric circles. I mentioned this before, that uh, the wisdom of Solomon, we know, was a wisdom that by comparison with the sages of the East, Solomon was wiser. But there also seems to be an outward trajectory to the book. That is to say, it begins with Solomon and his wisdom in the context of the home, and it progressively works its way outward till we have these two sages who are, other than being named here in the book of Proverbs, unknown to us. Uh, But I will say, Agur... Uh, I call him the Job of Proverbs, and if you read through some of his material here, he has some affinities with the book of Job uh, and the Lord's speeches that come at the end of the book, and I would characterize much of his material as riddle in nature, and that's why I say it's, I think, one of the more complex sections of the book because he invites you to think carefully about certain topics and how they relate to each other. And then the book is capped off with King Lemuel, and this is particularly oriented to uh, how the royal king is to act. Remember that uh, Proverbs has this two paths that we outlined at the beginning, and so the young, simple young man is to come to the book and to choose the right path And as he follows that path, ultimately it will lead him to chapter 31, where he gets closing advice from his mother. Remember, the father and mother begin the book, and now the mother ends the book. And then we have this poem about the wife of noble character in chapter 31. And uh, as I had suggested before, 
there are a number of connections between the Proverbs 31 wife of noble character and lady wisdom who speaks earlier in the book. So uh, I take that to indicate that she's really the embodiment of lady wisdom, that the young man is to look for that kind of a wife, and if he's pursued wisdom, uh, that's where he'll end up, okay? So that's kind of the, the outline of the growth of Proverbs. So I have a chart there on page 38 of how Proverbs likely grew, stage one, stage two, stage three. Uh, you can read through that, and I would take the the end of the book being sometime close to the date of Hezekiah, so around 700 B.C. Okay, so this would be around the time, uh, soon after the northern kingdom falls, King Hezekiah uh, and his men are there, and there's a revival of sorts under Hezekiah's reign, and uh, the wisdom literature seems to be finalized, uh, the book of Proverbs, in his reign. Okay? Any questions about that? Not? Okay. So let's want to talk a little bit about the genre of Proverbs. So page 39 and going on to page 40. I want to just give some principles that will help us uh, to think through how to understand the book of Proverbs because we do uh, see that Proverbs deal with a, a wide range of activities and are they always meant to be normative truth that we should apply in terms of a prescriptive or something that is mandatory to do? Okay, several principles that might help us. So page 40, uh, number one, a proverb is concise and memorable. Okay, so remember that uh, a proverb doesn't say everything there is to say about a certain topic. It's meant to be concise. So when something is concise, uh, sometimes uh, some of the details are left out in order to give it a verbal punch. And that's what we see in the book of Proverbs. Uh, if a proverb is made about some aspect of life, remember there are often other proverbs that balance the other side of that. We saw this with some examples of, uh, you know, there's a proverb to strike while the iron is hot and there's a proverb to look before you leap. Okay, when is one true or the other true? It depends on the circumstance, right? Wisdom is knowing when to apply the right proverb to the right instance. And so uh, being concise, sometimes it doesn't cover all the bases, but it's meant to be memorable. Okay, so it's concise and memorable. It's simple yet profound. And look at this example here, Proverbs 21.2. All a man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. Now, this is a rather simple statement. Right, A man's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs the heart. But uh, there's really a profound truth, and that is people think that they have an accurate self-evaluation, but the Lord, because he is sovereign, is the only one who really knows the heart. So in other words, God knows our hearts better than we do. Right, Our ways seem right to us, but God weighs the heart. So it's simple yet profound, and it invites contemplation and deep thought. All right, number three, a proverb is specific yet general. If you look at this example in Proverbs 26, 27, if a man digs a pit, he will fall into it. If a man rolls a stone, it will roll back on him. Now, is this proverb intended simply to give us truth about when you're digging in your backyard or when you're arranging stones? What do you think? Is it 
only intended for those scenarios? No. So what's the gist of what what is it saying essentially? Right. So, in other words, uh, we we have a saying: what goes around comes around. Right. That sometimes there there's inherent risk and danger in certain activities, and in this context, it's probably someone who's trying to ensnare another person, and in doing that, that often comes back to haunt them or to bite them in the end. And so, uh, it's specific. In other words, it's memorable because it's a a concrete activity: digging a pit. It's something we can imagine doing. But at the same time, it's general because the principle can apply to a lot of different situations. And this proverb that's uh, millennia old can be used today in various ways to give us wisdom about how we live life. Like the roadrunner. The roadrunner. Yeah, that's a good example. If you ever watch the, the cartoon of the roadrunner always setting a trap and uh, the coyote and always being in the end uh, destroyed by his own devices. All right, number four, a proverb is consistently cast into poetic form, okay? And this is an important uh, item to understand, and I want to just talk a little bit about what this means, okay? So let's, if, if you have your Bibles, um, we're in Proverbs. I want to look at some some examples. We can really, uh, let's, if we go to chapter 10, just look at it. Uh, some of these examples. When we talk about poetic form, what is the hallmark of Hebrew poetry? Okay, there are three things mentioned here that we want to talk about. Okay, brevity, parallelism, and figurative language. Brevity meaning a concise number of words. We can think of this, you know, if we think of uh, English poetry, uh, I don't think we read as much poetry as people used to. Uh, I've noticed that uh, it probably has fallen off because in general we have shorter attention spans maybe and we're just not quite as into some of the complexity of poetry. Uh, But throughout the ages, poetry has been... Popular and one of the hallmarks is a brevity. In other words, it's a very economical use of words. Fewer words, the better. So with brevity, there's a certain every word counts. Every word is significant. And so uh, sometimes it's hard to pick that up in a translation. Uh, I have an example. I think farther on in the notes where uh, the proverb itself is seven words in Hebrew. Uh, but it's translated with, I think, 21 words. So you kind of miss the brevity that's there in the original language, but we'll, it often will shine through in the fact that uh, it's very pithy in what it deals with. This second point is what I want to spend a little bit more time talking about, and that is parallelism. Uh, can anybody tell me, if you were just to try to sum up what parallelism means when it relates to the Proverbs, how would we characterize it or define it. When we say the lines of a proverb are parallel, what does that mean? Anybody have have thoughts about that? 
What does it mean to say that the lines are parallel? Yeah. They're saying different things, but their meanings are the same, right? They complement each other. Okay, they complement each other. Okay, good. Any other thoughts, Paul? Did you have a thought? I was just going to say kind of a reiteration. Okay, a reiteration, right? Okay, we use words like uh, echo or amplification. Okay, one writer has expressed it this way. Uh, the, the saying is, line A is so, and what's more, line B is so. In other words, line B is telling us something new, fresh, amplifying line A in some way. Okay, and that's really where the punch comes. Uh, if we look at chapter 10, for instance, and I look at verse 4, lazy hands make for poverty, but diligent hands bring wealth. Okay, so the parallelism, what does this suggest? So each uh, feature of the first line is replicated, echoed, or amplified in the second line. So in line A, the first noun phrase there is lazy hands. And how is that paralleled in the second line? Diligent hands. Okay, in the first line, lazy hands do what? They create poverty. Line B amplifies that or contrasts it by saying diligent hands, on the other hand, bring wealth. Okay? And beyond this, uh, line B typically is giving us the point of the proverb. That is to say, what the proverb is really leading us to. So, in, in this case, it would be, don't be lazy, but have diligent hands. Okay, so we see these, and, and a lot of these proverbs are contrastive in nature. If you look on page 41, uh, contrast, this has been called antithetical parallelism, and this is when one line contrasts with a former line. Okay, so that's one sort of parallelism. I have another example in verse 26. Uh, this is what's called emblematic parallelism. And this is a comparison. So if you look at verse 26, as vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so are sluggards to those who send them. Now, is the point of the proverb to talk about vinegar and smoke? No, not really. It's simply to use those things as what? Evidence of being irritated. Exactly. So that's a concrete word picture that suggests what a lazy person is to those who send them. Okay, uh, if you have children, you know, you may, this may resonate a little bit. You send your child to go do a task, and then 20 minutes later, go and check up on and see what's been done, and you realize that they got distracted immediately after being told to do something, and they haven't even started what you told them to do. This happens at least frequently in my house. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but uh, the point here is, uh, these things are uh, things that sort of are irritants and destructive in nature and don't accomplish any uh, purpose. All right, so uh, that's parallelism. It's important to understand how this works, and particularly as we work through the Proverbs, we want to see how that uh, punch in the second line works. The third thing is figurative language. Poetry in general, really in any culture and language, is figurative in nature, uh, the uh, 
one of my favorite poets is Robert Burns, and uh, he has a poem about marriage and about marriage lasting till death. And he talks about death as the iron hand that breaks the band. And the idea there is death is something that's permanent, something that is irrevocable, and it breaks, dissolves this union. But it's figurative language that has a cadence to it. And in Hebrew poetry, you often see this to be the case as well. Uh, We see concrete things that are used figuratively to suggest some sort of uh, important element or truth. All right, so those are are some of the categories. If you go to page 42, page 42, we want to just look at some of these examples of uh, literary categories. Now, just briefly touch on this. I don't necessarily want to get into uh, some of these details, and you can read through this. But these are some of the categories of the literary features that we would see in the book. So, for instance... uh, there is what's called instruction. Instruction is really uh, an exhortation, usually from the father, and this is particularly in the first part of the book, uh, is instruction. But we also see this in later chapters. So, for instance, if we go to chapter 22 and verse 17, uh, this is a section where there is uh literary links in the various verses and uh, it it has coherence really as instruction. It says, pay attention and turn your ear to the sayings of the wise. I'm reading verse 17 of chapter 22. Apply your heart to what I teach for it is pleasing when you keep them in your heart and have all of them ready on your lips. And it goes on and gives instruction as to the young man. Okay, so instruction is warning It's uh, motivation to listen and all these sorts of things. We have admonition, which is a more concrete warning. uh, And this particularly occurs in the speeches against the outside woman, right? There's admonition there, a warning against certain types of behavior. Okay, there are wisdom speeches, lady wisdom. She begins in chapter 1 and has a speech in chapter 8. Lady Folly has a speech in chapter 9. Wisdom speeches. Uh, the saying, which is the dominant form in the second part, these two line sayings, uh, and there are various types of these sayings. Let me, uh, the comparative we already talked about, but if you look at page 43 and number six, let me just briefly talk about this. Uh, better than sayings. Okay, so you may have noticed this as you read through the proverb that a lot of these are cast as this is better than that, right? And one of the things that Proverbs gives us when it gives us wisdom is an ability to distinguish between what is right and what is wrong and what is the best path, right? We face many instances in our lives where uh, we have a decision to make and both options seem like good options. You ever face a situation like this where it's really, it's not one's right and the other's wrong, they're both good options, so what do you do? So in those cases, Proverbs uh, often gives us better than sort of sayings that help us to distinguish that. Or it may simply be uh, an encouragement toward pursuing the right path. So if you look at this example, uh, as Hildebrandt notices that the form better A than B is often extended in Proverbs to say better A with X than B with Y. If you look at Proverbs 16, 8, 
better is a little with righteousness than great revenues with injustice. Okay, so this is a slightly more complex form of the better than saying, okay, but it's helping us to see one thing is better than the other. All right, then we have these numerical sayings which occur from time to time. One of the uh, clear examples is in chapter 6 and verse 16 where it says there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, and then it gives a list of these things. All right, you may have noticed these numerical sayings before and uh, wondered why does it express it that way? In other words, why does it say six and then seven? Is there any purpose to that or are those random numbers that have been selected? What do you think? I think that um, the first six are... Are important, the la- that last one is really what the others are meaning up to. Exactly. Right. So there's progression, and usually the, the sense of uh, completion, uh, usually it's six, seven, or three, four. Uh, that's what the book of Amos uses quite a bit. So in the six, seven, the seventh thing is really the punch, if you will, or that's the author's main point. And so here in, in uh, chapter 6, what would it be? Six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. So what is this really leading up to? The one who so stirs up conflict or sows discord. So in other words, all of these other features are really part of this uh, conflict creator who's dividing a wedge between uh, brothers and sisters and a community. And so all of these things are facets that are used to sow dissension. Okay, so the numerical sayings have that idea of leading up and there are other, uh, Agur in chapter 30 has several of these where he says, you know, uh, three things are amazing and four too wonderful for me and he'll talk about these complex things. All right, uh, number nine are what are called Yahweh sayings or the Lord sayings. Uh, if you've read through the book carefully, you notice when you come to chapter 15, really uh, 15 and chapter 16, there's a heightened uh, incidence of Proverbs that talk about the Lord. Uh, chapter 15, beginning in verse 3, the eyes of the Lord are everywhere. Uh, if you go down to verse 8, the Lord detests the sacrifice of the wicked. 9, the Lord detests the way of the wicked. And uh, within these two chapters is the highest concentration of what are called Yahweh sayings or uh, the Lord sayings. 55% of the 375 sayings of Proverbs are a form of this. And 15 and 16 is the highest concentration. We would call this the theological center of the book. Okay, so this is in the Solomonic collection, and 15 and 16 have the most concentrated allusion to the Lord and his view of reality. Uh, so important to keep in mind as we work through the book. All right, number 10 is an example story. Uh, think about this uh, in, in some of the sections of Proverbs where uh, Solomon, for instance, says he, no- he was walking and he noticed this. And he gives an example of, say, a rundown house, or he's uh, looking out his window and he sees a young woman meet a young man on a street corner. And so he has stories that illustrate 
what he's saying. And this is what a wise sage would do, is to give experiences that will help the young man. And this is not just Israelite wisdom literature, this is common in Egyptian wisdom literature as well. I said this a couple weeks ago, but the philosophy of the world, remember, is uh, live and learn, but Proverbs is learn and live. So the example story is meant to keep us from repeating the same mistake. And so the example is a poignant way of illustrating that. All right, Beatitudes, there are blessings that are pronounced. uh, And this is why uh, the Beatitudes of the Lord Jesus are also connected to wisdom in terms of how they uh, relate certain truths. And then on page 45, number 12 is an acrostic poem. And uh, we see this at the end of the book in chapter 31. And this is uh, something that expresses completion. It was often to help memorization. And it it had the idea of fullness. Uh, So that acrostic poem dealing with the wife of noble virtue. All right. Any thoughts about these uh, literary features or questions about them? Okay. So some of this is probably stuff that you've already thought about, maybe intuitive as you've read through, but some of it perhaps uh, is a a new way of thinking about this, all right? We talked a little bit about how do we catch connections between Proverbs, and here's a few other principles that might help us, and I want to just briefly mention a few of these and talk about on page uh, 47 an example of this, all right? One is repetition, repetition, and so uh, repetition is a major device in biblical poetry for showing emphasis. Remember that uh, in the ancient world they didn't have boldface type or italics. So how would an author get his point across? He would do it by repeating concepts. This is why uh, critics of the Bible have often pointed to uh, stories that seem to have similar features and said, see, this, this shows that uh, somebody had this version of the story, somebody had this version of the story, and what we have in Scripture is kind of a garbled recollection of these two different types of stories. Well, that's really, in many ways, a naive understanding of biblical literature because it was intentional on the part of the author to repeat certain themes or patterns for emphasis. And we see this in biblical poetry. Here's an example here in chapter 30, 11 to 14. We have this repetition in the NIV of those who... And this is related to the word door, which means generation. Verse 11, there are those who curse their fathers and do not bless their mothers. There are those who are pure in their own eyes. There are those whose eyes are ever so haughty. There are those whose teeth are swords and whose jaws are set with knives. So in other words, as we're reading through this, uh, this repetition suggests that this section is dealing with, uh, it's, it's consciously arranged in a group so as to suggest certain features of this generation, those who do this, those who do that. Okay, so repetition is one thing. Another thing is the use of synonyms, and I have an extended example here from 620 to 35. If you look on page 46, uh, you'll notice this section, which is a wisdom speech warning the young man against the outside woman. Verse 24, his words will protect you from an evil woman from the flattering tongue of a stranger. Okay, knowing what we now know about parallelism, how would we interpret that stranger? Is that just a random guy that the young man might meet? Or who is that stranger likely to be based on parallelism with the first line? 
What's up? The evil woman. Okay, right. So the, the evil woman. In other words, the parallelism suggests he's to be protected from the evil woman. That is the stranger or a woman who's outside his covenant bond of marriage who might allure him. Okay, later in verse 26, he talks about a prostitute's fee and then an adulteress. And then in verse 29, it's another man's wife. So here we have uh, synonyms that are all revolving around this individual, this woman who is outside the young man's purview, and he's warned against her enticements. Now, why would the author, Solomon, use different words in each verse to describe this? Why not simply say evil woman, evil woman, evil woman? What do we gain by having used synonyms here? Different situations that come up. Okay, different situations that come up. Somebody else said something, maybe similar? Better picture. Okay, a better picture, right. So we get a, a full-orbed idea of who this individual is. Uh, it's not just an evil woman, but it's somebody outside, uh, perhaps related to... Uh, Aggressive promiscuity, like a prostitute or another man's wife. So we have a fuller idea of who this is. So we want to pay attention to synonyms as we're reading through uh, to really get a better idea of how this works. All right. Um, on page 47, uh, this is an example of what I want to just highlight here is this idea of the punch word. Uh and this may already sort of be understood to you, but if you look at the how this how this proverb is laid out, uh, the translation there in English is a false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is His delight. Okay, seven words in Hebrew translates to this entire verse. When we look at the verse, two things we're noticing are number one the parallelism, and then number two the punch word. Now, why do we say the punch word? What often happens in these Proverbs is the final word is a point of emphasis. So in this case, the punch word would be what? His delight. So the point of the proverb is what delights the Lord. A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. So... The, the punch is his pleasure, his delight, and that's what the verse is focusing on. So as we read through Proverbs, we want to pay particular attention to that second line and how the second line ends, because that's usually where the author's emphasis is. He is often waiting for that last word, and that's where he drives home his point, okay, with the punch word. That makes sense how that works? All right. So let me just, uh, let's go to page 48 and a couple things I just want to mention here. Uh, I don't have time to get into all this. Uh, we've mentioned some of this before. Uh, the hermeneutical considerations. I just want to mention these uh, principles and you can go back through and look at these in more detail. Number one, Proverbs are not legal guarantees from God. We have touched on this already. We know that uh, not every proverb is meant to be a guarantee. I have an example there. Uh, in 1525, the Lord tears down the house of the proud but maintains the widow's boundaries. 
that doesn't necessarily always mean that a widow will be well off or that the proud will always be immediately destroyed, right? So, in other words, it's not a legal guarantee. And an important distinction that we make here is between what are called descriptive proverbs and prescriptive. And I just want to touch on this. The bottom of page 49, a descriptive proverb describes a situation of life without noting how it applies or what its exceptions are. It is not seeking to influence behavior, but to present the way life really is. Okay, top of 50, some examples of this. So, for instance, in 17.8, a bribe is seen as a charm by the one who gives it. They think success will come at every turn. All right, is this proverb commending the practice of giving bribes? Okay, we would say, no, this is simply... Showing how life in a fallen world is. Uh, what about Proverbs fourteen twenty? The poor are shunned even by their neighbors, but the rich have many friends. Is this saying that that this sort of a situation is a good one? No, it's simply saying that uh, rich people have a lot of so-called friends, and the poor are a sorry lot. Okay, this is. I always think of this proverb. Uh, when young men in particular uh, sign a multi-million dollar deal with some sports team and immediately they have all sorts of friends, right? People that are latching on to them that suddenly come out of the woodwork. And this is just the reality of life. Uh, Proverbs 31, 6 and 7. Give beer to him who is perishing, wine to those who are in anguish, let them drink and forget their poverty and remember their misery no more. Okay, we would not see this as a prescriptive proverb, but it's describing the way life is neither condemning nor condoning alcohol per se but it's simply saying uh, this is the way life is there are certain challenges and it's a realistic picture of that okay so i would call this a descriptive proverb on the other side of this are the prescriptive proverbs and these are proverbs which are meant to be normative for us now, how would we know? How would we know whether a proverb is one or the other? How do we know when a proverb is just giving us a general principle that's not necessarily intended to be absolute normative truth for every situation that we we have to follow this as if it were a command versus when proverbs are prescriptive or a command to be followed? How would we know? Any thoughts? Yeah. If there are elsewhere in scripture about that right then, okay then you can see that as prescriptive okay so if, if the proverb uh, say is tied to one of the other commands that we see in scripture we know that it's normative okay any other thoughts well when I look at, at a verse you know that says that them you know fear and forget their troubles and them no more I look at my own life experience. My husband was an alcoholic for many years. So, yeah, he could forget his troubles for a time. Right. But it would, it came to no good right. for him more for me. Right. So we can we can take our life experiences and look at what God is saying and almost figure out that he either has a sense of humor or he's, you know, allowing us to think for ourselves and realize that what he's saying to us is not his directive. 
it's not his prescription. Okay. 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 That makes sense. Can you give an example of one where a proverb is exactly the way it is? Uh, Like the sidewalk is, uh, it's raining outside, the sidewalk is wet. But just because the sidewalk's wet doesn't mean it's raining. Right. Can you give me one where it isn't exact? Because I didn't think there were any. Yeah, well, so let's use the example of Proverbs 11.1 1, that was on page 47. It says, A false balance is an abomination to the Lord, but a just weight is his delight. I would say that this is a prescriptive proverb in the sense that uh, it's not saying that sometimes people use false weights and get away with it because we might say, yeah, that's descriptive, that's the way life is. But it's giving you a moral absolute that cheating is always wrong and doing what is right is always pleasing to the Lord. So that's a prescriptive proverb, meaning it it contains a moral absolute. Does that make sense? Yeah, but it still still doesn't, to me, mean concrete. It's not airtight? Yeah. Right. Yeah, I can see what you're saying. Because of the nature of wisdom literature in general, it tends to make us think that uh, even when it's describing a situation that seems comprehensive in nature, is there a loophole because it's a wisdom saying as opposed to thou shalt not do X, Y, or Z? Okay, that's that's a good thought. Anybody want to jump on that idea? Dr. Well, how, could, how could they have a loophole if the Lord assures the sun scales? Yeah, it's pretty particular. What's the loophole? Yeah, that's why I would see it as a moral absolute. Okay, so 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 this is kind of an off the cuff, I guess, way of synthesizing this. But essentially, I would say descriptive proverbs are usually on a horizontal plane. Okay, and they're making some observation about life. A prescriptive proverb, in my mind, based on what I've read, always has. A, a vertical element to it and it's usually the Lord's view on a certain matter and whenever you see something is an abomination to the Lord, an abomination is always an abomination. So there's no wiggle room with an abomination. So Proverbs such as the Yahweh Proverbs of 15 and 16 that give us such and such is an abomination to the Lord, that's always going to be the case. So that really is a moral absolute, and it's on a vertical plane vis-a-vis a more horizontal plane. You look at the, uh, the descriptive ones, they're really looking at life in a fallen world on what I would call more of a horizontal plane. These are observations I've made about how people act within a fallen world, so we need to be careful in navigating relationships with them. But a prescriptive is going to be essentially saying, this is what the Lord views certain activities as, this or that. Does that make sense? Other thoughts? Okay, so so those are kind of the two differences of those. Uh, there are several other principles here. Let me just touch on them, page 51. Yep, sure. So on, on this uh, prescriptive proverb, you got the generalization. And that's the tough one, right? I mean, that's yeah. the one that's... So would you put train up a child in that category? Is that where you put that? Um, it's a prescriptive proverb, but... Or is that just... 
is that not prescriptive necessarily, but just uh, descriptive? Yeah, I would I would say it it probably is prescriptive because we have an imperative there, okay. but it is a generalization. Okay. I also think that how that proverb is often interpreted, I don't think is what it's actually saying, okay. because the the actual Hebrew, the word train there means to initiate or to experience. I think the point of the proverb is it literally says experience or initiate a child in his way, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. And if you look at the immediate context, uh, there, I think it's right there. Let me, let me just. You're thinking of a child's way? Yeah. So in other words, if you allow a child to become hardened in his own way, when he is old, he will not depart from it. But if you took it the other way. Okay. The Lord's way, you would see it as just a descriptive yes. uh, generalization, right? Yes, I would. Is that satisfactory? Okay. Along the line of, of seeing things elsewhere in Scripture, um, I don't know where this passage is. Somebody might where it, where it says that um, a fool can have a wise son and a wise man can have a foolish child. So, you know saying that that is a generalization that if you train a child in the right way right. in general he'll follow it right. but it's also true that the opposite can happen yes exactly and uh, the biblical narratives illustrate this with Solomon, Rehoboam you know with Hezekiah and, and his son I mean it's it can go both ways and sometimes uh I've seen really godly families that seem to be godly that have children that don't follow and, and vice versa. So it's a generalization, I would say, a general general truth. Um, so, all right, let me end, end by looking at page 52. I don't want to uh, belabor these uh, literary features because I think we've covered them in sufficient detail. Uh, and I also want to try to conclude the introduction tonight. Okay, so the theme and purpose of the book. What is the theme of Proverbs? We would say that its theme is found in chapter 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. This is uh, gives us the key phrase, which is the fear of the Lord. This is used 21 times in the Old Testament, 14 times in the book of Proverbs. So I want to just talk for a moment about what this means. If you look at page 53, uh, what fear of the Lord entails is one aspect that's important to understand. Does this mean when we say the fear of the Lord that we should be terrified of God because of his, uh, you know, you think of, Sinai, when the Lord appears there and the people are afraid to even go near the mountain, they're, they're really terrified of the presence of the Lord. Yes and no. Okay. Okay. Yes, because not only can he kill you, but he can kill your soul too. Right. Whereas you can just strangle and kill me, you can't take away my soul. Okay. So, right. yes and no. Okay, so it, it doesn't simply mean abject horror and fear. Right, but neither does it preclude a healthy dose of awe and trembling 
and a, and a realization that we're dealing with the God of the universe, not a back-slapping familiar buddy of ours. This is the sovereign God of the universe. One thing to keep in mind, and this was helpful to me when I really uh, began to understand this, is the fear of the Lord is really in the Old Testament used in a sense of knowing God personally. In other words, we can almost say the fear of the Lord is equivalent to saving faith in the Old Testament. The reason we say this is, for instance, in Proverbs 2.5, the fear of the Lord is parallel to knowledge of God, and in Proverbs 9.10, it's parallel to knowledge of the Holy One. So in other words, how the sage is explaining the fear of the Lord is saying it's knowing God and knowing the Holy One. So to fear the Lord is to know God and to be in reverence and awe to Him. Uh, it's, it's reverence and submission. Uh, this is what John Murray says in, in that quote there, that it's, it moves beyond reverence to encompass submission, the very soul of godliness. Right, so that's what the fear of the Lord is. What does it mean that this is the beginning of knowledge? What does it mean that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge? This, I think, is an important concept because in modern times, in educational systems in the West, we've really tried to divorce the concept of education from moral formation, right? In other words, education has become uh, very pragmatic in nature, and it's often to inculcate some skill or uh, pragmatically to do this or that to, to shape a person's views of the world. Uh, but Hebrew wisdom literature, the Bible doesn't divorce moral formation from content or knowledge. And so when it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, two things. Number one, it's temporally prior to the gaining of knowledge. So in other words, before you can really gain wisdom, you have to fear the Lord. Okay, so we could think about the implications of this. In other words, it's saying, you know, there are a lot of people in the world that are savvy and write books and are tremendously successful from a business standpoint. But if they don't fear the Lord, they haven't really gained a heart of wisdom. They have a moderate amount of skill, but they haven't really begun to put it all together in a biblical sense of gaining wisdom. And so it's the, the starting point for understanding wisdom. Secondly, uh, this idea of beginning can also have the connotation of a primary or controlling principle. That is to say, the fear of the Lord governs how we gain knowledge. So in other words, it's the starting point, but it also governs the process. As I'm gaining knowledge... I need to have the fear of the Lord front and center in all that I do so that all this knowledge loops back to a, a, a deeper reverence for God and an understanding of God. And this is how uh, early scientists such as Isaac Newton and others would pursue their studies by understanding that all this knowledge that's gained is really uh, a means of understanding creation better so we can understand the creator better. And really it ends in worship. So the fear of the Lord is a reverence for God that I think is equivalent in the Old Testament to a saving knowledge of God, and it is to be the starting point and governing principle into how as to how one pursues wisdom. Okay? 
So those are some of the, the key points that I wanted to get to tonight. Uh, there are other parts of the uh, introduction that I'll just leave you to read next week, Lord willing. I'll bring the next installment. We'll have that for you, and we'll begin to work through uh, these wisdom speeches. So we'll be looking forward to that. And uh, uh, thanks for your good attention tonight, and we will see you, Lord willing, next week. All right? Thank you.